Well, if you'll turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Romans, Romans 5. Romans 5 is page 942 on the Bibles in the rows. Um, feel free to use those Bibles, and as always, if you don't have a copy of your own, feel free to take one of those home with you. But we'll be in Romans 5, verses 1 through 11, and we'll actually be here uh, throughout this Advent season. So Romans 5, 1 through 11. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, We also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we do give you thanks for this word this morning. And Lord, we ask that you would direct us and guide us today. That you would fill me with your spirit to proclaim your word with clarity to proclaim the truth, that you would fill me, Lord, and that you would open all of our hearts and our eyes and our ears to see and to hear and to know your word, your unchangeable truth. Lord, work this in us for our good and joy and for your glory. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Something is deeply wrong in our society. There is an epidemic, but it's not necessarily what you would think of. This has nothing to do with a disease in a typical sense of that word, but it has been labeled as such, and it's the disease of despair. According to CDC research, between 2009 and 2021, teens who reported persistent feelings of sadness or hopelessness rose from 26%, which was bad enough, to 44%. And the crisis very much predated the pandemic. Beyond that, in the last decade, the suicide rates for those aged 10 to 24 has increased nearly 60%. Now, that's not to 60%, but increased 60%. Still bad. And right now is not the time to try and determine all the reasons why. The factors are numerous, from adult loneliness filtering down to the younger generation, to the proliferation of social media, um, to the effects of COVID and lockdowns, to economic issues, to the moral degradation of society. So much has influenced this, but the main point, the reality here, is that there is an overwhelming sense of hopelessness in our world, and particularly in our Western society. In many cases, there's just a sense of emptiness. 
What do I do? A sense of a, a lack of purpose in life. People are feeling more and more adrift with no real reason for what they do. And in one article I read, it stated this, that the, the world has become progressively more precarious, open-ended, and risky. The public frameworks that gave life direction and meaning, prescribed roles, rites of passage, compelling life scripts, stable occupational trajectories continue to fade away. The defining web of institutions, norms, and social mores further erodes. What this is saying is that there is little to ground people today. There's little to ground us. So much of it has has eroded away or actually been intentionally torn down. And we're feeling the effects of it all. And we need to recover the ground of our hope. We need to recover our hope. We need to recover a way to be equipped to handle the fallen world in which we live, to handle difficulty and trials. This morning, we begin the season of Advent, and I believe that what Advent brings us and will bring us, I believe it has the answers to so many of the problems we are facing. This is a time, Advent is a time where we learn to wait. We learn to hope and trust. Advent literally means arrival or or coming. And the saints prior to the birth of Jesus, in the midst of the world in which they lived, They awaited his coming. They had to to trust and hope in the promises of God to send the Messiah. And today, as we live in a time after Christ's first advent, we aren't free from that waiting because now we await his return. So we still live grounded in hope that God will fulfill his promises. Now, as we start this series over the next four weeks, we're going to look at the, the very traditional themes of Advent, of hope, peace, joy, and love. And as we do so, as I said, we're going to do so as we stay in Romans 5, 1 through 11. If you, if you noticed as we read through it, it has all of those themes in this passage. And this morning we begin with hope, which I think you figured out by now. And as we do so, we will look at three things. We're going to look at hope defined, hope working, and then hope growing. So defined, working, and growing. And my prayer is that we would hold on to this hope. We would grasp this hope. We would understand it and see the hope of God in a way that would help us live in this world each and every day. So then, what is hope? What is hope? Hope is a a desire that we have for something, that we have some level of expectation of it being fulfilled. So we have this desire for something, we have a level of expectation of it being fulfilled. Now, the hope that we typically talk about is uncertain, isn't it? There there are so many things we hope for, even daily, that that we cannot have a sure expectation that they will come to pass. There's hope that the Bengals will win. That that hope has faded recently. In the spring, there's always hope that the Reds might make it to the playoffs, and that fades very quickly as well. In this season, maybe you're hoping that someone remembers that one gift you really want, and then quite often on Christmas morning, that hope fades away too. Or you hope for good weather for a certain day because you're traveling or you want to be outside, and when you think of these, they're really fairly trivial. They're fairly trivial hopes. They they, they don't have any substantial effect on our lives. But there are others that can be a bit more consequential. Perhaps you're hoping for that raise to help you provide for your family better. 
or a, a new job that, that, that's one where you feel more like you fit. Maybe we, you hope for a good result from a health test. Maybe you hope that your kids will grow up healthy and happy. And those have a bit more weight to them, don't they? And yet, there's a commonality in all of these. There's no assurance. There's no guarantee. There's no promise in those hopes. But that's not the case with biblical hope. There's a difference. To hope biblically means to to look forward with expectancy for God's future activity, for the fulfillment of his promises. We we do so expectantly. That hope is, is fueled as you look back and you see how God has always been faithful to his promises. And so there's a tremendous amount of confidence in biblical hope because it's not based on the actions or faithfulness of sinful people. Christian hope, biblical hope, is based on the promises of our ever-faithful and perfectly good God. That's why we have confidence, because it's the God of the promises in which we hope. So we can see this as we turn to our text this morning. Hope works, and it's fueled by who God is and, and what he has done. So let's look at hope at work now. Now, there are two main areas where we see explicitly the idea of hope in this passage. First, we see it in verse 2. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. I want to first address the beginning of this verse. One, one thing that I, that I never want us to forget, you never want to take for granted that, that people know or understand this. And it's key throughout this passage, and it's the idea of the phrase, through him. It is through him, which means that it is in Jesus Christ, by being united to him, that we have life. That we possess what we have. It's all through our being united to Christ by grace, through faith. Through him, we have also done this. We have obtained these things. Now, this, this verse follows from Paul laying out justification in, in verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And, and justification is that being declared righteous in God's sight by, by grace through faith. It comes only through faith, and it is that justification that brings us peace, which we're going to look at more in depth next week. And then Paul tells those he's writing to, to believers that in Christ, we have also obtained access by faith, into this grace in which we stand. Now, that's an interesting turn of phrase. Where is it that we stand? What, what kind of standing is, is Paul talking about here? Now, to grasp this, I think it's helpful for us actually to go back to the beginning of the story, like literally to the beginning of the story, to Adam and Eve. They were created in the image of God, sinless, and they enjoyed the immediate fellowship with the Creator. But they sinned. And they were driven from the presence of God, from that immediate presence of God in the garden. And from then on, people, we we could still draw near to God, but not directly. It was mediated. This was the role of the high priest in the Old Covenant. But, But that high priest could only enter the presence of God into the Holy of Holies once a year on the Day of Atonement. And at that time, that, that still required a great deal of rites and rituals and cleansings and all kinds of things for him to be able to enter into that place. And R.C. Sproul wrote this. He said, A massive curtain of several folds and layers 
which was far more difficult to destroy than a huge wooden door, kept people out of the Holy of Holies. So that was barring people from that immediate presence of God. This veil was a reminder of the people that God was inaccessible. The veil hung there until the hour of the death of Christ, when it was torn in two as if a giant hand had reached down from heaven and ripped it like tissue paper. Why? Because the barrier between God and man was removed. The sin of man was now atoned for, and those who are justified are now able to come into the presence of God. They have access by the grace of justification. Paul is emphasizing the fact that for us to be in the presence of God is not a matter of merit. Rather, it is God's mercy and grace that make it possible for me to enter into fellowship with him. See, it is only by grace that we stand before God. And when, when Paul uses the idea of grace here, he's, it's really the fullness of the concept of grace. It's more than just a, a narrow definition of God's undeserved and unmerited favor upon us, as John Stott wrote. This is not so much the, his quality of graciousness as the sphere of God's grace, our privileged position of acceptance in Him. We, we stand in that. We stand in that position. We, we stand in, in the environment, in, the, in the, the air of God's grace. Now, from there, Paul writes that we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Now, let's camp on that phrase for a minute. Think about who Paul wrote to. And, 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 and then think about who you are naturally. How is humanity described in the letter to the Romans? Chapter 1, verses 21 to 23. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Humanity spurned God's glory. They, they, they had no hope in God's glory. They actually turned away from his glory. They exchanged it. They, they went after other things that had a lesser glory. And so often, we as people, we couldn't care less about God's glory. We don't think about it. Or further, think in, in 323, you know, a, a passage, a, a verse that probably most of us know, for all have sinned and what? fall short of the glory of God. So, so think about that, those realities, as to people's um, relation to the glory of God. Those who scorned God's glory, who exchanged it for a lie, who have woefully fallen short of it, Paul writes that they are now rejoicing or boasting or exalting in the hope of the glory of God. Because they've been justified in Christ. Because by God's grace, they have now, their sin has been dealt with. That's what this is telling us. This is amazing. This is such a transformation from pursuing lies and what is truly hopeless to now actually rejoicing and, and boasting in the hope of the glory of God. So, so what is Paul talking about with the glory of God in this passage? It's obviously God's glory, his, magnificent, uh, his magnificence, his character, his, his fullness of attributes, all that he is. But that glory of God, that hope of the glory of God also relates to us. As believers, we're righteous in God's sight. We have peace with God. We, we stand in grace, but yet there is still a future glorification to be revealed. 
We know this more if we move through Romans, and in particular into chapter 8. Chapter 8, verses 24 and 25. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. The final hope, the, 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 the redemption and glorification of our bodies is not yet here, though in a sense it is true, it, is, it will happen. You, you look at Romans 8.30 and that golden chain that, that those who have been justified have also been glorified. But yet we still wait for it, wait for the consummation of it with eager patience and with hope. And part of what we wait for, and, and, and I reference this a good bit because it's, it's a good thing to, to be reminded of, is we wait for all the sad things to become untrue. We, we wait for the change. We wait for the turn. We wait for Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from his throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write these down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Folks, the world of despair and hopelessness and anxiety it is going to be set right. Those things will be no more. God will dwell with his people. It will be set right. For the believer, the, the, the glory lost to Adam will be restored. Yet it's actually going to be greater. Because now, not only, we, we, we will not be restored to the image of the first Adam, but we're actually going to be restored to the image of the second Adam, of our Savior of the one in whom we are united. That's something we want to rehearse. We want to know. We want to, to rest in. That's, that's part of our waiting, part of our looking to Christ's advent, not only looking back, but looking forward. And this is a hope that can actually affect us now. In the here and now, this is a hope that can counter despair because we know what's coming it's much easier to endure a trial when you know it will end. Darkness, the night may be long, but joy comes with the morning. We see what's promised, and we look to it. We rest on that promise because we've never seen a promise of God fail, and we never will. We rest on our justification in Him and our standing in grace. We, folks, we don't stand in our works. We don't stand in our relationships or our social media feeds. We don't stand in who we are or what we've done. We stand in the grace of God. And that fosters and fuels our hope. But there's yet still more to this hope. Look at verse 3. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. 
And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Just a minute ago, I talked about rejoicing and hope of the glory of God, which, which to be honest, that's to be expected, okay? Like, yes, of course, you're going to rejoice in this glorious thing. But then Paul throws a little bit of a change up with the word rejoice here. We rejoice in our sufferings. What's he talking about? Is Paul simply saying that, that a believer can, can rejoice while going through troubles, but, but we don't actually rejoice in the, the troubles themselves? Maybe. But he could, and, and I think he is, saying that we rejoice in the sufferings themselves. Paul commonly uses the preposition in um, to talk about the object of our rejoicing, of our boasting. Even if you look down at verse 11. More than that, we also rejoice in God. He's rejoicing in God. That's the object of his boasting. Paul is exhorting us to that at 1 Corinthians 1.31. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. We are to, therefore, boast and rejoice in our sufferings, which should really prompt us to ask at that point, if we think that he's saying, yes, actually rejoice in your sufferings, how? How in the world are we to do that? And maybe even why? Well, let's see what Paul writes. He says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. And then that next word is key. Knowing. Knowing. We rejoice because we know something. We know what this suffering does in our lives. We aren't to just sit and and take the suffering in some stoic sense. We're to rejoice in it, knowing what the suffering does. And I can't help but think, uh, I heard an interview with her not long ago, but to to think of Johnny Erickson Tata. She's been a quadriplegic for 55 plus years, a freak diving accident. And she reflected about all that she'd learned early on after that, and obviously it was a struggle, but she reflected on on the benefits of suffering. She wrote of how it refines our faith, develops self-control, exposes sin, makes us dependent on God teaches us to follow the word, helps us empathize with others, with other hurting people, binds Christians together and fosters humility, and that is just scratching the surface. But you know, as she's aged, she's actually experienced greater and greater suffering. She deals with chronic, daily, debilitating pain that almost stops her from speaking at times. Not only that, she had to battle cancer. And it seemed for her, and, and she, she reflected on this, she's like, it's, I started to think, is the suffering outweighing the benefits? Is the suffering just way more? But, but yet she rested in this truth. So she, she knew I, I, she's got to go even deeper. And so she saw even more how her suffering had showed her God's character and showed her his goodness and grace and how God was working on her maturity through the whole process. She saw that this was the only path to her maturity and to intimacy with God, to knowing her Savior more deeply. John Stott wrote, Suffering is the one and only path to glory. Glory. 
It was so for Christ. It is so for Christians. As Paul will soon express it, we are co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. That's in chapter 8. That is why we are to rejoice in them both. And folks, this is why I think it's so important for us to know who God is. This is why we just went through the series we did, looking at the nature and character of God. Because when we know him and his character, that gives us a foundation on which to to rejoice and endure the sufferings. But it also, as we go through those sufferings rightly, it's like a circular thing that grows us in the knowledge of God that's, that's fueled by what we know, and then it continues to grow and grow and grow. It enables us to respond in a way that is fruitful because we see God as the one who is infinitely, eternally, and unchangeably good and wise and holy and powerful and true. Folks, suffering is to be productive. We're to respond productively and properly to it. And when we do, it leads to maturity. He says suffering produces endurance or steadfastness. And, and we, we know this. In, in many ways, we know this intuitively. We know that, that, that you get stronger. You toughen up in affliction and trial. No one has ever gained strength without resistance. You do not gain strength by sitting still. I, I remember when I broke my leg and I'd, I was just in, in the hospital bed for, I don't know, five days. I could barely get up. I struggled on the floor to lift my leg after a few days. Like, it was an absolute workout. We don't gain strength through ease. We gain it through resistance. We have to learn to endure and approach our our suffering. um, uh, Approaching it, it, it properly helps teach us that endurance. And then in turn, endurance produces character. And the word here speaks to one who has been tested and and has passed the test. It's proven or mature character. It's it's the veteran compared to the rookie in, in kind of whatever area, arena you would think. But the vet has proven himself over and over again. He's been tested and there's a strength of character that develops in that testing. And then lastly, that proven character produces hope. You see even some of the circular aspect too. This is a a deeper hope, a more proven hope. It's fueled by the experiences of God's goodness in the midst of suffering. It's it's that hope that is proven. This is hope that leads us to to verse 5. And hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit has been given to us. And I I absolutely love the start of verse 5. And hope does not put us to shame. And I remember, I memorized this as a, as a younger believer in the old NIV, the 1984 version. And hope does not disappoint us. Hope does not disappoint. Now, everyday hope that we have that's uncertain, oh yeah, that can disappoint us. Many of us were disappointed at about 8 o'clock last night with FC Cincinnati. We were disappointed in that hope. Those kind of things can disappoint us, but this hope does not disappoint us. It doesn't disappoint us because it's a hope that's not in vain. It's a solid and real hope. Our hope is not in an illusion. It is not a fantasy. What tells us that? 
In many ways, it's all the promises of God, but Paul says it's the love of God poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. We subjectively know this. We know of God's love in our own lives, but we also objectively know that love through Christ's incarnation. Through the mere fact that the the God who created everything took on frail human flesh in order to save us from our sin and our rebellion against him. The incarnation reminds us so much that in the midst of darkness, light has come and will come again. It will not remain dark forever. There is hope. The circumstances may be rough, but nothing is bigger than the truth of God. Nothing is bigger than the truth of God in Christ Jesus who came to save his people and give them hope. And it's in that hope that a believer will never be ashamed. There will be no shame. We will not cower like Adam and Eve in shame at our sin because our sin has been dealt with. We will not cower in that. We will stand in the grace of Christ and in his glory and we will glorify him for all eternity because we have a real hope. That pushes us through anything that's going on now. Biblical hope is confident. It is a hope that's waiting with eager expectation and anticipation of God's light to break through ever more clearly for God's glory. And I love what C.S. Lewis wrote in Mere Christianity. He's got a chapter in there on hope, and he wrote this. Hope is one of the theological virtues. This means that a continual looking forward to the eternal world is not, as some modern people think, a form of escapism or wishful thinking, but one of the things a Christian is meant to do. It does not mean that that we leave the present world as it is. If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. The apostles themselves, who set on foot the conversion of the Roman Empire, the great men who built up the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this one. Aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth, and you're going to get neither. John Piper, in commenting on this a little bit, he said, it's true maybe that you could be too earthly or too heavenly minded to be earthly good, but his next comment was, I've never met one of those people. We need to learn to lift our eyes and our affections to where our hope lies. And rest in that. We need to learn to wait in the midst of whatever we're going through based on the hope that we have. The hope that we saw in the incarnation. The hope that we know will come at his second advent. The season helps us with that waiting. It reminds us to wait. But even in that reminder to wait, it reminds us that he's done it. He's fulfilled what he said he would do. As we rehearse the story of God's love shining brightly in a baby in a manger, let that fill you with hope. He was the long-awaited Messiah, the long-expected Jesus, and he came to set his people free, and he will come again and set us completely free. 
He became Emmanuel, God with us. And we will be with him in a world set right when he comes again. Folks, this is our hope. Let us stand in that hope. Let's pray. Father, please work in our hearts and our minds and our affections. Draw us ever more deeply into your promises, into your truth, into the hope of the glory of God. Remind us of that daily. And especially in this season as we sing songs that we're so familiar with in many ways, but yet they speak such truth. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Come thou long expected Jesus, born to set thy people free. Lord, let us rest in who you are. Fuel our hope. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.